We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. the end of the day it's just the fact that there are no consequences for how or anyone really involved in this story and i know that the the book seems to be poking fun at the kind of fairy tale ending aspect of it because you know how explicitly says shall we like have our happily ever after and it's like tee hee hee the book is self-aware but i don't know i just wish there were some consequences yeah, I know. You said that it happens in the second book. Uh, we're not reading the second book right now. We're reading the first book. Well, and he doesn't suffer consequences for the first book stuff anyways. It's different consequences. So, But there's like, uh, I was thinking of even that scene when Hal and the witch fight in Port Haven and they have this big old mm-hmm. battle and it describes how they're causing like these tidal waves to happen that are sending the ships in port all over the place. And a tidal wave hits the city and like hits some of the people. And there's no doubt that some of those ships were broken. Some of the town was flooded. Some people got hurt or even killed. And I wish there had been some sense of like reckoning for the, the collateral damage of this very personal beef. That is going on. You want Age of Ultron, but Hal style? There's only one path to peace. Hal's extinction. <laughs> nah, just like somebody calling Hal out. And then you could have had some interesting beef because then that would push against the, the facade that Hal is very intent on maintaining of his aloofness. He couldn't pretend to be aloof and repair all the damage he has caused in this fight or something like that. And that would have been, I feel like, a very minor way that wouldn't have actually changed the story so much. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's the best example anyway. <laughs> but it just things like that kept standing out to me of there being no consequences for how behaving the way he has behaved, which then led me to the end where we shouldn't be rewarding how for this. He should do some work on himself before he's like, Sophie, should we get together now? Sophie should be like, bitch, please work on yourself a little bit. Do some self-care work and stop being an asshole. Then maybe we'll talk. And there's the whole line of that gets repeated a couple of times about how Sophie has been part of why Hal is reforming. Oh, Sophie's changing her man for the better. She's fixing him right up and it's like uh and i'm not saying that that's like a bad message that the book is sending but uh to me it's kind of lame because it just feels like then all the responsibility for change <laughs> like how doesn't take responsibility for anything and then even the responsibility for changing himself for the better is passed on to other people and it's just like Make Hal work a little bit for this. That's all. That's all I want. Um, I mean, I guess for me, I, I certainly read it less as like Sophie changes Hal. I mean, she does, but like he also changes her. So for me, it's more of a mutual thing that they mutually grow through their experience of each other. It's just that because we're seen through Sophie's experience, we hear about Hal changing more. And I think kind of to segue in, we've already sort of talked about this, but like the whole theme of identity, which is just kind of the crux point of the book. So Sophie is able to partially figure out who she is better by being, I, it's so funny because I was listening to, for our listeners who don't know, we do listen to our recordings again. (laughs) (laughs) Casey listens to them the most because he's our genius editor. Oh, thank you. But I, I do listen to them again just to make sure, you know, nothing weird gets left in. Sometimes I catch swears that haven't been meowed. <laughs> this is my crucial purpose in this world. <laughs> uh, but I was listening to our Bluest Eye, that episode, talking about like the line about the old women in there and how they're able, because they're older, like they feel different in their bodies and they're kind of freed in this way. Yeah. And it was interesting 
listening to that, like right after having reread this book, because certainly Sophie getting being turned into the old woman frees her. She t- talks multiple times that she wouldn't dare be as rude or audacious or whatever if she was young. But as an old woman, she just feels like she can do whatever the f*** she wants. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of very shy version of herself that had come into being through isolation and more isolation. (laughs) Uh She's kind of able to be freed from through this transformation and find essentially her true self and realize some of her flaws that she didn't even know she had. Like she, how you notice that he's affecting her is that multiple times he'll say something to her and then she'll call back to it at various points throughout the story. So like a big one is that he tells her that she does things without thinking. She's like, hadn't ever, I think, fully realized that herself. But then she's like, oh, I do just kind of jump into things without thinking, you know, heading off to seek her fortune after getting told her turned into an old woman two seconds ago. And so uh like, huh? I was just going to say, even before that, accepting the apprenticeship at the hat shop without even thinking about like, should I be getting a wage for this? Or should I be seeking something (laughs) more or anything like that? You know, you see her realizing things about herself and learning things about herself through not only like her transformative experience of being an old woman, but through like the relationship she builds with Hal, Calcifer, and Michael. And so that's obviously the key story of identity finding. But certainly Howells too, like he has all these facades. Uh, I think you use that term and it's a very good one for him. He constructs beautiful facades, Mm -hmm. but they're very, very fake. His whole thing is Sophie falls in love with him as he becomes more honest about who he is, which is why it's important that the last thing that happens is the win to advance an honest mind. And it's only after that that she's able to release the spell she's been holding on herself and have that happily ever after with him. But even things like he takes her to Wales. Um, and I think the first moment you see Sophie feeling defensive of Hal is when his sister Megan is laying into him. She all of a sudden feels protective and defensive. And she's like, come, Hal, we must go. Your <laughs> servants will be selling the gold plate, which is absolutely ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And like Michael's over there wincing. But it is the first moment of like uh, Sophie having more of that protective affection for him. And it's because for the first time, she's seen something more real about him. She's seen him... She saw him with his niece and his nephew, and she's seen him and how his sister treats him. I think she has a line, too. Like, after meeting Megan, she understands somewhat more how Hal became a Slytherer outer. Mm-hmm. And so that whole bit, they both help each other be more honest or realize who they are. And that's kind of a very... Which is, again, why presenting their worst versions of themselves first, I think, is also equally crucial. It's about that honesty and transparency I mean, I agree with you about Sophie for sure. Like, I do think this book is really interesting in in how it plays with the idea of perspective, how when Sophie changes to an old woman and all these habits that like talking to objects, for example, how that would be seen as weird and abnormal for a young strapping woman to do. It's totally normal for old people to just mutter to themselves and yada, yada, yada. And, mm-hmm. and she really embraces, she really embraces being an old woman. She does. And Bless her soul. I know. That's cool to see how being outside of herself allows her to embrace herself more. Yeah, so I, I like that. And I do like how as, she, as things shift And she learns more about how and sees how in different kind of situations, the way she feels about him shifts that well. We we can implicitly and organically see how she's growing and how her perspective is changing. I'm glad you brought up Wales because I hated every single bit of Wales. (laughs) Not the actual country of Wales. I have a good friend who is from Wales and she's a very wonderful lady. No, I'm sure Wales is a lovely place. Before you go on your whale, I just want to insert one thing here for context, I guess, which is that like Diana Wynne Jones has a like interesting preoccupation with multiple universes. So this is a kind of recurring theme. I hate it. 
Okay, I'm just, I'll let you go on your rant now. I just did want to say this is not like a, she deliberately made this up for Howl's Moving Castle thing. And in fact, I will say I think this is the book I like at least in. Mm. Her other big version of this, I think, is spectacularly done and it really makes sense. This version is a little more... Like, I think it's cool that, like, this random PhD student just hopped into Magic World. I think that's just fun. But I did want to give the context. It wasn't like she was like, ah, what this book needs is them to go to Wales. <laughs> it's like, this is something she often does. I don't think anyone says that about Wales. Again, no offense to Welsh people. You have a lovely country where it rains all the time. And and I guess corgis, the, the word corgis... Comes from there, I think. I might be wrong about My that. My name is Welsh. Well, there you go. Thanks, Welsh. Okay, so there's there are two aspects about Wales in this book that I hate. One is the more... It's more just kind of a surface level thing where it just completely took me out of the book. So I was like happily going along in this fantasy world. And when he was like... Here, follow me through this door into another fantastical place. I was excited. But then when we jump into our actual world, it like took me out of the experience of being in this fantasy world and having to reconcile that, oh, these two dimensions exist in the same book. And now I have to... Uh, I, it's the just, reverse Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, it's just like, ugh, ugh. I, I didn't care for that aspect. So it, it took me out of the world. I had to, like, go through the process of suspending my disbelief again, which is always a pain in the ass when you have to do it in the middle of a book. So that that's probably very personal, but it is how I felt, and my emotions matter, Morgan. Mm-hmm. The complete condescending. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it. I worked hard on uh, that. The second aspect is that I just felt like it... The family felt to me like props. And that especially was the feeling at the end when we learn that the witch is supposedly attacking Hal's family. But then we learn that which was actually a decoy, uh, actually. And uh, so the family being attacked was a red herring. And it just kind of feels that way when there is no reference at all to Hal's family at the end of the book. I mean, it makes sense for the end of the book because uh, they're just things are wrapping up and, and there's not really time to get into that. But it just felt... It felt weird to introduce a thing that seems to point most dramatically to Hal's biggest flaws without any kind of resolution one way or the other. And then when you learn it's all a misdirect, it's like, uh, so we didn't really need to care about this family at all. So that's that's how the whole Wales bit felt to me. Why Why go through the trouble of establishing... These people come from a different world when it doesn't really feel like that has any actual impact on the plot. I don't really have too much to say about it other than that, because <laughs> it just felt like nothing actually interesting happened there. The biggest impact of it is that it gives you a better idea of who Howl is. I do think if you grew up in our world and grew up on fairy tales and then found a way into fairy tale world and there's like this whole okay i'm about to out myself as a nerd but i guess i already have oh doing <laughs> doing a podcast about rereading books from your childhood hasn't already outed you as a nerd this is a different kind of nerd so if there's a big it's right now a really big trend but there's this whole like subgenre in um manga and anime that's called isekai uh -huh. and the whole idea is that you someone from our world travels to another fantasy world. And that's like the Isekai story. And so like Halsey Castle is technically an Isekai, which is like a whole weird thing. Also makes sense why Miyazaki would want it, although he does absolutely nothing with that. Howell is not from Wales in his version. Yeah. But the interesting thing about Isekai stories, and I think what you can sort of see in Howell, although again, like this is never fully explained, we're meant to pick this up or understand this, is that like when you go from a world 
a normal world like ours, you know, normal, quote unquote, our version of normal. And then if you were suddenly transported into a world where magic existed and fairy tale elements were real, you just kind of go crazy a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. like, I think that there's like a lot of isekai stories where they're like, awesome. Now this means that I get to do X, Y, and Z because I'm clearly the main character because I came from this whole other world, right? And there's this like high idea and expectations about like what that world means to you. And I do think you see that sort of in little ways how his understanding of like money is the worst. Uh-huh. <laughs> he just spends everything. But like the question is, and I think this also ties in with his heartlessness is that like how much of Ingri is is real for him in this weird way. It's fantastic. He goes in and he's like, I'm the hero. I'm the wizard with the awesome, great powers. I'm yeah, the romantic hero who's going to seduce all these women and have no consequences, right? It explains so much of how, why Hal is the way he is. Like, he has a natural predisposition to be like that. So for me, Wales really sets up Hal as a character. And there's a lot that you can kind of glean from the fact that he does not come from this world. He comes from our world. Keeping that in mind makes him a richer character, even in moments where it's not being at all referenced. That said, I agree Wales is my least favorite part of the book, too. It's just the least interesting part. And I think that as much as it adds to hell, which it absolutely does, and I I wouldn't take it away, it also feels like part of the reason, the other reason that's there is to include John Den's song, which is an excellent poem. And this is the first place I ever saw it. And, you know, I recommend it. The moral is that women are never faithful, but, you know, it's a beautiful poem. And (laughs) I can forgive John Den for being a misogynist. He's old. He is old. He's quite old in in a manner of speaking. He's dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he is from what you might call the Renaissance or the early modern period in England. Think Shakespeare, guys. Indeed. I'm going to push back on the idea that it makes him a richer character because I the things that you were saying I already knew about how from seeing in this book and I already got from the sense that he is this ultimate wizard with ultimate powers that places him so far above everyone else it makes like i think you make a good point about whales and how that would sort of impact his way of seeing the world it just to me feels redundant how's an asshole whether or not whales exists (laughs) you know um that's not to say that all welsh people are assholes I, i feel like this podcast is like we're outing ourselves as really anti-Welsh people. It's all you. <laughs> You're the only one outing yourself as anti-Welsh. I'm on the Welsh train. I was the one who was like, hashtag justice for Howl. Where is that Welsh accent? Whatever the case. Sorry, there's a cop car going by yelling. Let, let's, let's see if this will pass soon. This is an emergency. Somebody said something anti-Welsh. You are fined one credit for a violation of the verbal morality standard. There are much more interesting ways that the book could have said this. And in fact, I think the book was already saying this same thing in much more interesting ways with how (laughs) being stuck in the bathroom for two hours every day. (laughs) <laughs> just disappearing and not telling anyone where he's going or explaining himself to anybody and just generally not committing himself to anything, which I actually I liked that a lot because it also seemed to be getting the, at this idea of of love because there, there's this line where Hal is talking about the witch and he says she is in some ways a very sad lady, very unloved. Every man in Ingri is scared stiff of her. There, there's this interesting portrait of how all these characters <laughs> respond to love or the lack of love. The witch is just desperate for the perfect man or whatever. Like she is obsessed and driven mad by this quest that she has given herself. And then Hal is kind of almost the opposite in that he's so like commitment phobic. 
So he he's constantly ba- bouncing back and forth where he's using other people to fill the void, but he's also unable to return the feelings. And I just thought that was like a really cool way to show that of literally making him heartless. And then you could also even add like Sophie into that equation where Sophie, she uh, doesn't have a lot of self-esteem. And the way she Mm -hmm. responds to that is by resigning herself to this established role. She is the oldest sister, which in this world means that she will have the worst fortune of all. And then you see when she turned into an old lady, she resigns herself to that role in a well, not resigns is probably not the right word there. She she embraces that role, but she nonetheless accepts the role of being an old woman to kind of avoid more critical thinking on her own part about who she is, what she wants, how she's going to get it, how Hal is yeah. is a babe. What's funny enough to me is, <laughs> well, uh, just as sorry. one last point, what's funny to me is that the character that seems most well-adjusted in matters of love, certainly romance, but just any kind of love, is Michael, who is the yeah. abandoned orphan. <laughs> and it's like, if anyone's going to be f***ed up, it would be him. But he has like the cutest love story with um, Martha, who is pretending to be Letty. But he's also just like a good, kind, wonderful, compassionate person. And actually, he's a big part of why this story resonated with me. Like, I couldn't give a f- about how at all. But Michael, uh, Michael's my guy. Well, boy, he's a boy, but, you know. He's 15, so, you know, he's between. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that, oh, I want to talk about Michael now, but I feel like I need to. Hold off on Michael. Yeah. Get to my love story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can also bring in that at the end, Michael at the end. Um, But, yeah, I think that, too, like you said, you you said Sophie embraces being an old woman, and you're like, oh, not embrace she resigns herself to that role in a well not resigns is probably not the right word there she she embraces that role and you're like oh not embrace she embraces that role and you're like oh not embrace wrong that was so wrong but she she holds on to the spell longer than like howl and calcifer would have pulled it off her so that moment when they're like trying to fix her heart with the scarecrow which is really early on is implied to be one of the times they attempt to get the spell off her so she quite literally clings on to that role, um, subconsciously, sure, but nonetheless, as part of a, yeah, defense against love. Because one of the things she says when they're having that not conversation about how she is or isn't in love with Hal is she says, it doesn't matter anyways, like I'm an old woman. As if that bars her being able to have any romantic love, be the object of any romantic love, etc. Like, she uses it as a defense against her own feelings or Hal's feelings for her. Well, also, she's not an old woman. It's a spell. Like, she is, yes. in fact, not an old woman. But she seems to think that if, as long as she looks like an old woman, right. that she is, and therefore that's a, that's a sort of defense she can have. So I think you're very on point about talking about the love stories. And Michael and Martha's love story also has to do with identity as well, because the whole idea that Martha says early on is that she is letting the spell that makes her look like Letty gradually wear off, so she starts looking more and more like herself. And her aim with this is to find out if the person she loves really loves her for who she actually is, Mm -hmm. and not just what she looks like. So the whole idea is that Michael, and this is proved, I think at some point he has sort of a corresponding line to address this, where he's like, I don't care what she looks like. Letty is always Letty. And he also says at some point, because Sophie, after ha- like they see uh, actual Letty with Hal, Mrs. Fairfax's house, is like, oh, those two Lettys, they could be twins. Mm. And Michael's like, oh, no, my Letty's much prettier. <laughs> so it's very cute because like their whole love story is also themed around like ideas of identity that like, Michael does really love her for who she is. And I think that, honestly, Michael being the most well-adjusted kind of does make sense in this weird way because we have no evidence that he wasn't raised in a loving household with his parents before they passed away. He wasn't abandoned. They died, so... Well, yeah. But but he was, like, homeless 
for I don't know how long, but a long time. We're not told, yeah, how long he was homeless for. It could have been like a month. It could have been years. We have no idea. Right. But it's it, which obviously like being homeless is a traumatic experience. And it talks about I, I think it's really moving part of the story. It talks about how he just basically moved from one doorstep to another because the inevitable response was people would just run him off. Mm-hmm. Nobody showed him any compassion. The world showed no compassion for me! Exactly. He could have turned into the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> but until he just happens to be on Hal's doorstep and Hal just kind of lets him come in. That's where things take off for him, really. But yeah, it's just like, it's a cool, it's cool to see Michael making the best of, of his situation and not taking anything for granted. And I think that's, that's something that's very important. Why Michael is such a good person in this story is that he never takes anything for granted. Like he is Mm -hmm. so God hardworking. We see him constantly at work figuring out spells or if how is throwing a temper tantrum. It describes how he's constantly running around the house and yet he still has time to like do his whole courting business with Martha. This guy knows how to hustle and he knows that like how to stay humble. Mm -hmm. That's a lesson that Hal never learns. And yet he still gets everything he wants in the end because there is no justice in this universe. My God. Not even in the fantasy world. (laughs) Michael is going to be a great dad of 10 kids. Oh, for sure. Martha has chosen well. For sure. He's going to be a fantastic father of her 10 kids. (laughs) There's an opportunity in Wales to look at familial love. And we see some of that with how, especially with his niece, they clearly are very, very close. But it just never goes more examined than that very surface level of what we're given. So that the whole scene falls flat for me. But outside of that, seeing how how his womanizing ways speak to something broken about himself, which feels very, uh, very true about womanizing men in our world. That I don't know. That to me is just a lot more interesting, I guess. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just like I'm, I feel like we've kind of I feel like I've said all my whales bits, so I'm like I have no I have no return commentary. I've already I'm glad that we got to have the John Dunn poem as the curse. I thought that was cool. Yeah. And funnily enough, I need to double check this because I could have sworn I read this somewhere, and I'm now not sure if it was true. But so that John Dunn poem is also the inspiration for Neil Gaiman's Stardust. Oh. I'm pretty sure that they like both decided to do something based off of this poem as like uh-huh. a mutual thing, but I really can't be sure. Well, on that note, the, a weird thing that I discovered in reading this John Donne poem is that I think the line that's in the poem, teach me to hear the mermaid singing. Mm-hmm. I r- realized that the line from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, where he says, I've heard the mermaid singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I think that's a reference to this poem, which yeah, makes a lot of probably. sense. Probably. Yeah, that's very T.S. Eliot. <laughs> <laughs> he would reference. He, he definitely would reference. But I also I um I feel some instinctual where if we're both thinking about this poem outside of the narrative itself, then maybe that's a clue that it's not quite the right fit no i this was where i was introduced to the poems the poem always makes me think of Hal's moving castle when i encounter it elsewhere and then now that i've had so much more context for this poem mm-hmm. like i've had it in multiple classes i've seen it in other things for me it works absolutely i i'm not sure it for me it will always be the poem from Hal's moving castle <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> you know what i mean mm-hmm. like that's my first de- reaction it's just that i have a lot more loaded onto it now but yeah yeah, I think. Um, go ahead. Sorry, go. Uh, uh, no, you go. <laughs> I was gonna kind of change the topic, so you you go first. I yeah, I was just gonna say. To me, it's just distracting. It works in your situation. It works with kids 
reading this because I don't think a lot of kids are reading John Donne. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) If this is your first introduction to John Donne, it's not a distraction. As an English major, I'm very aware of John Donne. So when you put a John Donne character or a John Donne poem into this completely fantastical world, it's kind of like, uh, I guess, to use a reference that only you and I will understand and none of our listeners. But it's like in The (laughs) Witcher, the last Witcher book, when suddenly Sir Galahad Uh. appears and it's like, oh, really? You got to you got to do that. It's not as strong as that, but that's kind of how I feel. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole magnitude of something else. <laughs> I, I could go on for ages about how f***ed up that whole thing was. Not to mention, like, he chose Sir Galahad. Casey here, interrupting the podcast. So Morgan does, in fact, go on for ages about this whole thing. So I'm just going to fast forward us to the next part. Uh, but I wanted to bring up, since we've already chatted a little about Michael and how great Michael is. He is great. Very cute. Very adorable. Him and Martha are adorable. The other member of the castle crew who we've barely touched on, our good friend Calcifer. Of course. He's a cool guy. (laughs) Not cool. He's hot. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he is indeed the hottest person in this book. (laughs) Oh, God, everyone who's listening to this still has just turned us off. This is the official end of the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. (laughs) No more pressure. Uh, It's also funny because after I read this book, I had a novella checked out from the library that was supposed to be like, it was advertised as The Goblin Emperor, which is a book by uh, Catherine Addison, meets Howl's Moving Castle. And I was like, how great. Uh, I'll read it right after I've read Howl's Moving Castle. It was so exciting, so good. And then, like, the only similarity was just that there was, like, a fire demon in it, which... Ugh, lame cares? <laughs> I just, like, really... I have, like, nothing deep to say. I just really like Calcifer. Like, you were talking about how Michael really was such a bright light for you. And I enjoy Calcifer so much as a character and how grumpy he is, but also how much feeling he has. His moments, like when he makes the castle go faster for Sophie, even though it wears him out, just because she's scared. It's so cute. And, you know, when he, like, disappoints Hal by not telling him something and he tries to make up for it and they're so cute. I just, like I said, I think that Calcifer loving Sophie and Michael is what allows Hal to love them. And I think that it's so nice to, like, really see that come through, their, like, affection for each other. And the fact that he chooses to come back, for me, I know you were like, ah, oh, this just is more of how getting everything. Right. But like, th- I didn't mention this right after um, Sophie gets Hal's part back and he defeats the witch's fire demon, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, she's like, well, Hal's first gone because I pulled him off. And like Hal that has like this moment of sadness. That he'll really miss Calcifer. And there's this question in the beginning about whether they really care about each other. And, like, throughout the book, you see that Hal and Calcifer do have, like, a real friendship. And uh, Diana Wayne-Jones has another quote about how why Hal, Calcifer, and Sophie work really well together as a team. Because they continue forwards as a team in the next couple of books. Michael and some of the other characters come and go more, but it's always the three of them together. And I think that... It's because they're a thruple. <laughs> They kind of are, emotionally. I think they kind of are. Like, not even you. Like I said, I think Howell loves Sophie because Calcifer loves Sophie. So for me, they are a little bit romantically a thing. Those bedtime scenes are very, very hot in every sense of the word. <laughs> My God. Anywho. <laughs> should cut that one out. That, that, no, that's the, uh, uh, what's the deviant arts? Is that the website? That's the kind of sh- I oh want to see. Deviant art is like dead now. <laughs> you're behind the times. I'm a boomer. People are going to think you're way older than you are. You're not a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> you're not even Gen X, no matter how much you try to be. Oh my God. I feel so old. Yeah, so they're in this uh, quote about uh, from Diana Wayne Jones about why they make such a great team. 
one of the things she says is that uh, Hal and Calcifer, because they have been almost one person for some years in the past, work wonderfully together as a team. Between them, they can do almost anything magical. The found family of it all. I really like that element of this. Oh, I was going to say, too, I love the moment where um, when they have the flower shop, Calcifer gets lonely because they spend all day out in the flower shop. So Sophie sets aside an hour each day to just come and sit and talk to him in the middle of the workday. It's just keep him company. It's good. It's interesting to think about because uh, given that Calcifer, have we already said this? He is a falling star. Mm hmm. Or he was a falling star that got rescued, captured. Oh, well, I don't know how to describe yeah, it. Yeah, Howell caught Calcifer. Calcifer didn't want to die. So Howell caught Calcifer and they agreed to the contract to keep Calcifer alive. But theoretically, space is a very lonely place. So, you know, having 24 hours by yourself doesn't seem like it would be a big deal for a former star. But I, what do I know? I forgot to mention this the last time you brought it up, but I do really enjoy the detail you brought up about the reason Hal starts to love Michael and Sophie is because Calcifer. I think that's ah, that's great. I guess for me, the reason why I really like Calcifer is that Calcifer does for me what I think Hal was supposed to do, but Calcifer is just <laughs> much less obnoxious <laughs> so i tend to be like oh yeah calcifer is a, he is literally a fire demon which gets brought up about like should we really trust him so he's got all these things going against him but we also see these genuine hearted huh, moments with him that even though it puts himself at risk he makes the castle go faster to run away from the scarecrow even though he's stuck and he and he he reiterates how miserable he is to be stuck in this fireplace. He nonetheless is always looking out for everybody within it. And he doesn't begrudge that fact, really. He might say he does, but you can tell that this is really important to him. That works <laughs> so much better for me in redeeming his character through his actions because there, there is a quality with Hal where there's a lot of characters who tell rather than show how Hal is a good character, actually a good person. Really? Believe me? Trust me? Yes, I know it doesn't make sense, but here is a list of good deeds he's done. That doesn't really resonate with me as well when you constantly have characters telling me, hey, he's actually a good guy. I'm like, you i'll make my own decisions and i i think there's nobody nobody coming around saying hey calcifer you know he's a fire demon but he's actually a really good guy he is capable of showing it through the narrative and maybe part of that is that of the characters in this book that sophie spends time with calcifer i guess it might be a tie between calcifer and michael but both those characters are the characters that she spends the most time with and so we get to actually see Calcifer act. When Hal acts, it's always, almost always off screen. And so it doesn't hit my heart the same way as if we actually saw Hal do a good deed in person. So We do see him do good deeds in person. But, well, and I mean, certainly him catching Calcifer in the first place and giving up his heart so Calcifer can live. Mm-hmm. It's just we see more often how turning into green slime or how stuck in the bathroom for two hours or how <laughs> throwing a temper tantrum and saying he has a cold. So he's going to go to sleep and die whining and yelling and crying and forcing poor Michael to run around to take care of him. It really does have the feeling that like, OK, you know, like jerks are capable of good deeds every now and then but that doesn't change the fact that he's a jerk and so I, i'm not as inclined as to forgive him for his misdeeds but then i guess i, I would then again like i i also i'm not attracted to him so i think that's probably a part of it as well um, well not I to say that too, you're like yeah anyway, go ahead go rebut <laughs> for me like his good deeds are so much bigger like honestly other than like 
breaking girls' hearts in a very not nice way, which I would definitely say I, I rank as his greatest crime is the way that he goes around willfully making women fall in love with him just to break their hearts, which regardless of, like, I've already talked about the nuances I think are in that, I still find, like, his worst scene. The other stuff's just obnoxious, right? And, like... For me, that gets outweighed by her good deeds, which I find are much larger. I'll put up with someone taking two hours in the bathroom if they're the kind of person who would give up their heart to help a fire demon they've never met before live. But you're right in that, like, I do think, one, the fact that, like, I am attracted to him, at least on a, in the, like, weird way I am attracted to book characters, which is not... I even hesitate to use the word attraction. Mm. It doesn't quite feel like the right word to use, but it's the only one I've got. So there it is. But like, certainly that is going to help me feel not as irritated by his more obnoxious moments. I mean, I just think they're funny. Like when you're reading the book, these things are comedic, you know, for the most part. Mm -hmm. They're presented as comedy. And I will say also that I think you particularly have a really strong dislike that we've talked about in the past of like womanizers. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that for you, you would have even more of like a bias against Hal. Uh, yeah, he's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Also, I'm going to have a, a Diane Wynn Jones moment and be like, would you really put up with somebody taking the bathroom for two hours? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a little sister. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> She's very good now. She's moved most of her activities that used to be in the bathroom to her room. So it, this no longer happens. But basically, my thought on bathroom etiquette, as long as, as, long as you give me the heads up in advance so I can do anything I need in the bathroom before you're going to hog it for two hours, I just need to know so that, you know, I can pee. How did we get to this? We're talking bathroom etiquette. My goodness. As long as Hal uses proper bathroom etiquette and Sophie's chill with it, power to him. We saw the state of his bathroom. I don't think he's using proper bathroom etiquette. That's not etiquette. That's just cleanliness. He's a fucking sloth. Well, no, that would honestly be the biggest, bigger issue. Like, okay, I know this is semantic, but I would have. That also is part of bathroom etiquette, is keeping a clean bathroom. I wouldn't say that's (laughs) etiquette. I would say that's cleanliness. Yeah, this is clearly semantics that we're not going to resolve. I hate how you love how that's the ultimate point. (laughs) That's what we're arguing about. (laughs) This entire episode is howl or not to howl. Mm, That is the question. Yeah. There's even a skull. Oh, my goodness. He does. I will say... um. The one thing that I did enjoy about uh, whales being incorporated and Hal being from our world is it makes the references he makes not obnoxious. Mm, uh, well, to each their own. Well, it's, it's not a Father Christmas in <laughs> Narnia scenario. You know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean. They're justified in the text. It's just like, oh, oh, something's rotten in Denmark. Ugh. It's just, you know, you know. That he did this with like a smirk and he was feeling so smug about making that reference that nobody else would understand, which I know you're a big smirk person. So this all just makes it more appealing. But I'm sorry if I had a skull, I would absolutely be him letting at it all the time. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is a universal experience. You have a human skull. You do Hamlet at it. I'm not sure what you want from people. (sighs) Anywho, I feel like, let's see, were there any other big things? Did you like the body horror of the whole combined bodies? Yes, there are two things I want. One thing I want to talk about and one thing I want to ask you about, because you're notorious around here for hating body horror. And in fact, you impugned the good name of R.L. Stein when you were talking in our Goosebumps episode about how your dislike for that series was in part due to body horror elements in one book that you read. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading this book, not only does a character have her body changed against her will, which I think is part of what you said was your dislike with that previously, Mm -hmm. but literally people are getting chopped up and put back together (laughs) to make a new body. Why 
<laughs> the body horror in this book doesn't bother you in when it seems like in other cases that it does. I think it's the framing of it. Like, I can't be sure, but I think it's just how it's framed. Now that it's not gross conceptually, <laughs> it absolutely is. <laughs> but like, there's not a lot of lingering over it. They're just like, this man has pieces of other man in mm-hmm. him. And I'm like, all right. Guess he's got pieces of other man. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like a lot of times with body horror, there's a lot of like lingering emphasis on it. Like, uh, you know, thinking about the R.L. Stein one where uh, the girl is transformed into some kind of bird, I believe. If I remember correctly, there's a whole like description of how she feels when she's changing. Mm. And like that sort of thing is what will really gross me out a lot of times. Sophie, like doesn't feel anything the ship doesn't make her feel anything Mm -hmm. and like she's angry about it afterwards but she's not dwelling on like the horror of the fact that her body is distorted it's really about how it's framed and a lot of times body horror is framed in this way that really makes me uncomfortable but yeah no i I was thinking about that again rereading it i was like i hope casey enjoys this Just the the bodies being put together. I did enjoy that. I wish we learned about it earlier because I'd just been like, ooh, that that's tasty. I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that leads well into my other point that I want to bring up where I was, and this is due to watching the movie first, but I was disappointed in the characterization of the witch in this book. We don't really get to see her character at all. And when we do, it's just her being evil. Yes. Comically evil, really. So she doesn't really have a personality beyond that. And one thing I really liked about the movie is that the witch in that movie goes from this like repulsive character to somebody who is actually kind of quaint and endearing to having like uh, suddenly like a really emotional moment at the end when her arc is kind of complete. Mm-hmm. Here, she's literally, it seems like, a vessel for the real villain who is actually Miss Angorian. Right. And that, to me, was just disappointing because there are there are lines about, there's the quote I said earlier about how she's a very sad lady. There's another quote that talks about how she sees herself as a solitary flower and how actually calls her pathetic for thinking that way and i'm like wait stop narrative let's talk about that what do you mean by that who is this witch character who was she before perhaps this is one area where as you said jones leaves a lot of things for the for readers to figure out and i wish this wasn't one of those moments where we actually got a little bit more background on the witch and spent a little bit more time with her as a character to really get more sense if anything of her motivations like why did she rescue a falling star like that would have been cool to learn about um and i think the implication is because the witch wanted the powers to to make herself remain youthful but that yeah that's such a cliched reason to be like oh so i can be beautiful forever and I just, well, and uh, it's yeah. never given to us by, like, an actual source that knows her. So, like, Mrs. Pent Simmons has this moment where she's figured out the witch bonded with a fire demon. Yeah, they tell me she was not wicked once. Blah, blah, blah. She, though she's older than either of us and keeps herself young by her arts. But now I see, she said, what has happened to the witch. She made a contract with the fire demon, and over the years, that demon has taken control of her. Demons do not understand good and evil, but they can be bribed into a contract, providing the human, provided the human offers them something valuable, something only humans have. This prolongs the life of both human and demon, and the human gets the demon's magic powers to add to his or her own. We're not really made to understand, yes, why she took this contract in the first place. We're certainly given to understand that at this point the fire demon has kind of taken the reins, so to speak, and that her whole scheme to make a man so that the perfect man so he can be king of Ingri and she can be queen of Ingri is all just a front for the fire demon's plan to 
basically get rid of the witch, take Hal's heart, and use Hal as her new, like, human bonded contract vessel. But yes, no, certainly, like, I wouldn't even say there's a lot that's left for us to just intuit. I think it's just questions that, like, you know, the witch is old, super old, old enough that, like, the person, the people who would have the answers to these questions are, like, no longer around. Mm -hmm. And the witch is, at this point, just completely subsumed by the demon. So, certainly, like, I, I see your point that, like, there's not much there. And I, I do find the handling of her in the movie touching. I just think that, yeah, it's just not it's because <laughs> there's such different stories. There's not necessarily room in this story for that kind of exploration. I mean, other than, again, that it somewhat ties it to the theme of identity in that at this point, her identity is is gone because she's been essentially taken over. It just, I guess, really what it amounts to is that the villains in this book feel very lackluster. Hmm. They're, they're kind of there to drive the plot along, which is fine. It almost doesn't really matter because, it, like, the more interesting yeah. stuff is happening with Sophie back in the castle. Yeah. I mean, I would say, like, you know, in the man versus world versus those whole, like, uh, what are they called? But there's like, uh, there's man versus nature, man versus man, or man versus self, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. As the three like conflicts that you can have in a story. And like, certainly this is, seems to be like man versus man and that like, you know, we've got our crew facing off against the witch. And I will agree. I think that she's more of a, of a plot thing. I think the real thing is sort of more man versus self, or at least Sophie figuring out what to do, because in the end. It's not up to Sophie to defeat the witch, right? It's not up to our main character to defeat the witch. What Sophie has to do is figure out how to turn herself back and break Hal and Calcifer's contract. And that's more about Sophie figuring herself out internally than any sort of external battle. So I see what you're saying. I mean, I agree that if, like, this was a more villain-focused story, I would absolutely be on board with, like, there's not enough development given to the witch and the Sangorian. As it is, again, I think as you you said, I'm very unbothered by it because I don't think they're the point. That, well, yeah, I guess uh, to further clarify that, just because I'm not bothered by it doesn't mean I don't think it could be better. And I think the movie mm. does it better because it, it adds to the, the, the themes that the movie was going for, uh, which are kind of different, <laughs> than, different than the book. <laughs> but I do think that there were opportunities to bring more of that into it and it's kind of like the last second reveal that miss angorian is actually the real villain all along just uh it uh and it also creates this feeling and i think this is why the end of the book is such a train wreck when you have all these characters coming back i don't care about prince justin i don't care about wizard solomon as characters or even as plot devices because it doesn't really feel like the plot cares about them but it they have to be brought back because that's kind of the driving force. They're the MacGuffins. Yeah. But they, uh, I just don't care about them. So that's the, that's the thing. Like, like I understand why Jones couldn't necessarily just write a fantasy novel where an old cursed lady hangs out in a house all day with some weird wizard guy and his fire demon. It kind of feels meandering just saying that, but it just it it's weird to say, but the plot feels like a wheat point for this book. <laughs> I mean, I think that it's it's interesting. The fairy tale setting uh-huh. of this book is very much mirrored by the book itself, right? It's a it's a fairy tale, essentially. Um, with a lot more depth to the characters than we expect, and certainly characters who are not what we would expect from a fairy tale. But like they reference Bluebeard, I want to say multiple times over the course of the story, and that's certainly one of the fairy tales being told here. And like the Lost Prince and all of that. There's a lot of fairy tales going into this, and it feels like a fairy tale plot in how perfectly it's kind of constructed to get you to this end point. I agree if I was looking for, you know, uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh-huh. that, that is not what this is giving you. This is not giving you complex plot. 
This is giving you fairy tale plot, but what if the characters in a fairy tale were real, essentially? What if they had flaws? What if they were more dynamic, interesting people? And when I say I'm not bothered, it's because it's not that I wouldn't like to know more about certain things. Certainly, that I always want to know more about things if the story's good. A good story makes you want to know more about it. But I, I say I'm not bothered more because, like, the story for me is structured so impeccably. For the most part, there's, a like, one chapter that I find on, like, especially now that I've read it so many times, drags a little. But, well, and we've talked about whales already. But for me, I don't really want the padding because I feel like it's very, you know, very perfectly paced to keep you going and to keep you're getting answers as you're getting more questions and it's all building to this like very neatly tied bow at the end. I don't really want those other things to come in and and complicate that Mm -hmm. very well-crafted fairy tale structure. As much as I'm interested to know more, as much as like, I honestly would love another chapter or so of Sophie and Hell actually f***ing talking after all of this. But like, that's not how the fairy tale ends. The fairy tale, you know, the problem is solved, you know, the... The prince gets his heart back or whatever. And uh, then they lived out happily ever after. Because of how this story is meant to work, I think that it is doing that perfectly. If we were going to get to these other things, like care more about Prince Justin and Wizard Solomon and all those, then it becomes a very different story doing very different things. And I, I like that I've got the story that like, Almost every line has some sort of significance because Diana Wayne Jones is not wasting your time. I want to say that Jones is wasting my time because that just feels mean. But it does feel like the witch basically serves as a subplot for this book. And it feels like padding to me because I'm not really getting much out of it other than that it kind of... the. I just think more could have been done with it. But as it is, it just feels like like everything with the dog (laughs) specifically just feels like I'm collecting information and not doing anything with it. And that's that's where my frustration with that sort of thing comes in. It's just that, like, I have this information. What am I supposed to do with it? And I think this is just something that is going to be an impasse with us. But I just don't think it's it's doing that much. And so it's just like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess it just feels overcomplicated to especially the dog just feels so overcomplicated to have the dog be two characters combined as one character turned into a dog who can sometimes turn back into man and turns into a different dog every time he does like that just feels overcomplicated. It feels messy. And when you get to the end scene with the Solomon talking to Letty and being like, actually, my memories of you were from the prince, but I like you. So like and I'm like, what the f- does any of this mean? <laughs> he doesn't say he likes her. He says he'll take her on as an apprentice. Yeah, yeah. But yes. Yeah. The connotation is there is that he likes her. Yeah. So that's the whole thing that happens. Which is like, I want to know more about that because that's fat, that whole premise of that, of falling in love with somebody through somebody through else's, else's memories. memories. Thanks, you owe me a cold. Like, whoa, that's a really cool idea. Somebody who's listening out there, write that book. But as it's presented, it's even said in a very throwaway way. Where it's like, if Sophie was paying attention, she would have noticed this thing happening. But then she decided it wasn't her problem, so she stopped listening. And it's like, okay, so why did I have to listen to that then? Does that make sense? I don't know if that (gasps) makes sense. No, it makes sense. Okay. The Letty Wizard Solomon thing does nothing for me. Exactly. (laughs) So I have zero feelings. It's like one line at the end, and I'm like, all right. Um, I mean, it kind of... Sophie's not paying attention because she and Hal are, like, sort of having their romantic confession to each other without either of them actually having to confess. Which, like, I will say that's another thing I actually really appreciate about this romance. Neither of them say the words, I love you. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that is very much implied. Neither of them has, like, a confession to the other. This is just understood between them, and I do really like that, just as a, a thing. 
I feel like the anti the anti confession <laughs> is kind of satisfying in its own way. It feels very British. But it feels this is I want to say no. This that's not true. Okay, I think Diana Wayne Jones has only written two, three maybe stories where romantic love is at the center, and that's like saying something. She's written a ton of books. Most of the time, if it exists, it's a pretty like subplotty subplot. So like my favorite series by her does have two characters that fall in love and end up getting married, but Gasp. like them actually falling in love happens entirely off screen. Mm. So <laughs> it's just like they knew each other as kids <laughs> and were really good friends and then like they get married and you're like, all right. But wow, I've gone completely <laughs> off topic. <laughs> wow. Um what was I saying before this? Oh, yeah. So, like, that that bit at the end is, like, Sophie and Hell are having their um, not really confession, but committing them to spend the rest of their lives together. And so, like, there's just things happening in the background as various characters now, like, re-encounter each other in the light of this new information. And that's one of them. And it's meant to give you, certainly, a sense of greater closure, you know? Yeah. We're wrapping up the thread with Letty and Wizard Solomon. Here you go. Yeah, it's like the thing before the credits of like, here's the wall of text explaining where each character is now. It's like an epilogue if you didn't actually write an epilogue. Uh (laughs) And instead gave like one sentence versions Uh of where everyone was. And again, this one, when I say it doesn't bother me, I mean more in that it literally does not bother me. Like, I don't, I think they could have been left out and I would have been not wondering about what happens with Letty and Wizard Solomon. Like, I'm not... I don't think I would have been wondering about that, but (laughs) I definitely see what you mean in that, like, I'll give you this, we're having the dramatic not confession slash getting together scene, (laughs) and then there's just stuff happening in the background, and like, like Sophie and Hal, I am not interested in any of it until Calcifer comes back. (laughs) Like, I'm like, I I would like to sit here in this nice romantic not confession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been a nice moment with... If it had no chaos, there's one thing I will say about the movie, which I think is actually kind of feels like it's parodying parodying this book. Do do you remember that moment with the when the um, scarecrow suddenly magically turns into the missing prince and he like announces like, oh, yes, I'm the prince that's been missing since the beginning of the book. And I was cursed and I needed to have the kiss of my one true love. How convenient is that? Wow. Like that feels like a satire of what's happening here. (laughs) It's like, oh, whoops, this thing existed. I forgot about that. Let me just uh, beep, 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 beep. I don't think it's, I wouldn't say forgot. I would say it's just that, like, there is not space for a long extended, (laughs) nor does she really want to spend a lot of time explaining about how Wizard Solomon feels now that he's re-got his own body. And yeah, and I would say I do remember that exact moment, (laughs) which I'm going to be less generous on. I feel like that's less of a, a parody than them attempting to Take something from the book, change it, and then not doing it very well. Mm. I do, That doesn't come off to me like parody. That comes off to me like a bad adaptation. But uh. obviously, we both have our, <laughs> our biases that are coming into play here. Oh, God. We, can't, we cannot have a discussion about adaptations that we'll save that for another day. Yeah. <laughs> we'll save it for when we eventually rewatch season one of The Witcher uh. before season two. That's when we can have our adaptation discussion. There you go. Something to look forward to, listeners. I suppose to end it all, my real question is, whatever happens to that farmer at the beginning of the novel? (laughs) Because we know that nobody is as they seem in this book. So clearly, there's something fishy about that guy. Maybe he's Hal and Sophie's son, time traveled. Oh, oh, that's so good. I love that. They do have a son, by the way. Guess what that son's name is? Uh, what's the name? Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I blew out the speakers after everyone listening with that sound. (laughs) I told you my name was Welsh. (laughs) Amazing. Yep. Well, okay. Now we know that you are the love child of Sophie and Hal. And uh, (laughs) it makes... A lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm coming so 
Okay, let's <laughs> let's say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. Please comment in support of Howl. How how how? Like this if you hate Howl. There's not even a commenting function on any of the platforms, so I don't know how that would work. <laughs> oh no, there's there would be a review for just for our iTunes. Just go on iTunes uh, <laughs> and leave a review. That's a comment. <laughs> Weigh in on the cow debate. There you go. There you go, Morgan. Way to trick our listeners. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Until next time. I'll still be stuff. Bye bye.